This is the Mindful Musical Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Miske. Before we jump into this week's interview, I wanted to share a bit of exciting news. I have developed a four-week introduction to mindfulness for musicians. Through four 30-minute private meetings with me and structured private practice on your own, you will gain an understanding of the main elements of mindfulness, learn some mindfulness practices, and develop exercises to incorporate mindfulness into your music making. If you are interested in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss this course and see if it's right for you, please reach out to me via Instagram at mindfulmusicallife or via email at mindfulmusicallife at gmail.com. I am very excited to announce this week's guest and Reno local, Gary Main. Gary has performed, recorded, taught, presented clinics, and provided masterclasses at universities, public schools, conferences, and festivals around the world. He regularly presents on topics of mental health at universities such as Eastman School of Music, Arizona State University, University of North Texas, University of Iowa, and the University of Nevada, Reno. Gary served as the trombone teacher at LaBam Music Cap in Bayreuth, Lebanon, as well as ensemble director at the Cyprus Jazz Workshop in Nicosia, Cyprus. As a big band performer, he has performed and recorded regularly with groups such as the Glenn Miller Orchestra, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, the Ben Markley Big Band, the Arturo Sandoval Mambo Big Band, and David Caffey Jazz Orchestra, and many more. As a symphonic musician, Gary has performed with the Colorado Symphony, the Reno Philharmonic, the Colorado Music Festival Orchestra, Opera Colorado, the Greeley Philharmonic Orchestra, the Wyoming Symphony, and the Colorado Springs Philharmonic, and has toured as a member of the Spark Brass Quintet. Gary has also spent 10 years as the trombonist with Big Head, Todd, and the Monsters, and has performed and recorded with them in Colorado, Florida, and the Caribbean, as well as performing at numerous festivals with multiple headlining shows at Red Rocks Amphitheater. In addition to this impressive musical resume, Gary is a licensed therapist in Reno and owns Sound Minds Mental Health, PLLC. Gary specializes in treating trauma and working with couples, but also works with general needs like anxiety, depression, grief, and other human experiences. Gary attended the University of Northern Colorado and Trinity Washington University in Washington, D.C. Gary has a truly unique and special combination of experiences that provides deep understanding into the mental health challenges that musicians face. His valuable suggestions in this interview are applicable to just about everyone, musician or not, and can easily be applied to the specific challenges that musicians face. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with licensed therapist and professional musician, Gary Main. Hi, Gary. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to talk to you and hear all about what, what you do in both the worlds of music and in mental health. So um, why don't we dive right in and you can tell us a little bit about what you do professionally on the day-to-day and a little bit about your musical background as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's odd to see you without our instruments in hand. <laughs> yeah, I'm used no to kidding. seeing you with with some instruments. So this is great. Well, you know, I do a few things here in town in Reno, but primarily what I do is I'm a therapist here in town, and kind of in the mental health side of things. My licensure here in Nevada is what is it called here? Clinical professional counselor. I'm also licensed up in Washington State, which is licensed mental health counselor, but it's the same. Licensure, same degree, just slightly different terminology. And towards the end of the podcast, maybe I can walk through folks with maybe how to look for a therapist if they're interested for themselves and what the different kind of licensures might mean and some other resources in which to, to seek that out. 
Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I'm, I, I'm sure lots of people would be interested in hearing more about that. Totally. So on a day-to-day basis, kind of what are the, the types of um, things that you're helping with uh, with your, your patients or your, uh, yeah, anyone you're seeing? Sure. You know, it's so interesting. It's, it's nice to put my musical hat on for a little bit because uh, when I'm not playing music myself, I'm a trombone player. Um, most of my work throughout the day is not necessarily centered around music. It's, I work with all sorts of things that come up. I, I advertise myself as a real trauma specialist here in town, and I also work with a lot of couples. And the kind of couples work I do primarily is what we call Gottman couples work, which I can kind of get into a little bit later, and also some emotional focus therapy work there. And on the trauma side, I do a lot of EMDR work with folks, which is really kind of about reprocessing some of those highly emotional or stuck events we may have in our, in our histories. Um, but I'm also very cognitively based. Uh, if you're familiar with CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy and even something called dialectical behavioral therapy. So some of the things that I'm going to talk about today when I've got my, my therapist hat on, I'm not going to give you much opinion about stuff. Anything that I share with you when my therapist hat is on is going to be pretty evidence-based and uh, researchable if, if anyone listening wants to learn more about anything I say there. Uh, when I talk about more of my musical side and, and more of my personal side, it may include some non-evidence-based things. I guess the only evidence is, is living it out myself. But when my therapist hat's on, it's going to be pretty darn data, data-driven. So Great. Yeah. I agree. I appreciate you clarifying that too. It's always uh-huh. nice to know, you know, kind of where things are coming from and fact versus opinion is always, is always nice to be clarified. Totally. Um, where would you like to start? Do you want to start more on the clinical side of things and talk a little bit about, more about that? Or would you like to dive into kind of your musical background and, and some things along that line? Let's see. Let's do the musical side. That sounds like fun. Great. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, about your musical background? Um, and maybe from there we can dovetail into some your interactions with the side of mental health and music somewhere. Yeah, that sounds that. great. You know, I'll, I'll start with some recent things, then I'll go backwards. It's because probably I can remember those more clearly. <laughs> um, but I am an active musician, and I, I, like to, I like to keep that going because I'm passionate about it. But also it's something that I find a lot of strength from maintaining. And so... Uh, just kind of going backwards a little bit so folks can can get a sense of my my uh, life in Reno here. It's a pretty busy November, and I'll just go through kind of my schedule for the first couple of weeks. It's not always this busy. This was a little bit exceptional, but um, so the beginning of November, I usually work at my private practice here in Reno, typically from noon to six. Those are kind of my hours of operation. And so for the first week, I was going to Reno Phil directly from there, and we did almost a full week of rehearsals for uh, the Oregon Symphony concert. And then we'd have a performance Saturday night, performance Sunday night, and also some rehearsals over the weekend as well. And so I'd go right from the the private practice to to, uh, Reno Phil and was playing second trombone and some bass trombone on that concert. And then kind of the next week, Went right back to the private practice, noon to six, and it's pretty solid uh, folks throughout that time, just kind of back-to-back in those hours. And I think you and I met up Monday and Tuesday to record. Yeah, we did a recording session those couple nights too, yeah. yeah. Uh, And after that, that was Brass Quintet, by the way, which is wonderful. Uh, 
one of my big inspirations for, for bass trombone is a, a guy named John Rojack who plays in the American Brass Quintet. And every time I get to play bass trombone in a brass quintet, I, I try and do it how he would do it. So I <laughs> uh, fail miserably, but I try. Uh, the rest of the week I was playing, uh, doing the private practice thing during the day, and then I was playing lead trombone, which was fun, in the Reno Jazz Orchestra the rest of the week and performing over the weekend. So all this to say, I'm very active in music, um, and I feel lucky to be able to do that. So going backwards just a little bit, I'll go back to the beginning. I grew up in a what I, I would call a very musical family. My dad taught at the University of Northern Colorado. He was one of the two band directors there. So I grew up pretty traditionally starting sixth grade in trombone, uh, kind of middle of the pack in middle school, and then really learned to, to love the instrument. And when I was in high school, I heard the Buddy Rich band play in the summer one time, not live, but on a recording. It was live at Ronnie Scott's. And as soon as I heard that, that recording, I just fell in love with jazz. And when I fell in love with jazz, I, I really fell in love with the trombone. And so high school was equally as interested in tennis as I was trombone, but ended up getting into the uh, all-state bands and, and honor bands, things like that, and really just kind of found that I, I was able to improve on the instrument. I don't know if quickly is the right way to say it, but I could see improvement, which was very motivating. And if we wanted to later, we can kind of come back to what strengths are in our lives versus what talents are. But uh, always had some talent for the trombone, but grew it into a strength, if you want to put it that way. So decided going into college, I was really either going to go the music ed route or the psychology route and ended up going the music ed route, which I'm so glad that I did. So when I did that, went into music education, University of Northern Colorado. My instrument was trombone, of course. Played in all the wind ensembles there, the university orchestra, the lab bands one and two there, and uh, graduated. Had a really great time student teaching, learned a lot through that experience. Got my first teaching job at a middle school called Lewis Palmer Middle School in Monument, Colorado. Taught there for a couple years and then moved up to a high school called Fossil Ridge High School up in Fort Collins, Colorado. But just a little bit of a side note, I, I'd always been performing throughout that time. I got called to do my first salsa gig at 18 and had to sneak in the back because I wasn't old enough to go in the front. Uh, <laughs> And had just an awesome time. And one thing about that salsa gig that I, I really loved, I've probably done literally thousands of salsa gigs over the years, is that it's very communal. It's the dancers are part of the community. The musicians are part of the community. The, the club owners are part of the community. And everybody knows and loves the music. And so I think that's one reason why I enjoy that, that kind of playing. And probably about halfway through my undergrad degree, I pretty much made the choice that auditioning for orchestral jobs was just not, that was not what I wanted to choose to do. I love playing in orchestras, and I'll get to that in a minute, but I was always more on the commercial side. I enjoyed the, the networking that's part of getting work like that, and I enjoyed the showing up with little rehearsal and having to nail it either live or over recording. That's really where I feel like I do the best and what I get the most enjoyment out of, so I've always enjoyed doing that. Um, I'm not used to talking about myself this much. I'll keep going. <laughs> You're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm used to listening more than I'm talking. So uh, anyway, so when I was teaching, I kept performing. And the first 
the first time I played with the Colorado Symphony was very last minute. I was actually doing an afternoon gig with a big band there. Got a call that the bass trombone player couldn't make it because he got sick. Um, a guy named Greg Harper, a really great player in Colorado. And it was New Year's Eve. So I showed up, played the New Year's Eve show without any rehearsals. I had to figure out where to find a white jacket. Yeah. That was rough on New Year's Eve. Uh, but showed up, sight read all the stuff, and as any bl- uh, bass trombone player who has sight read waltzes would know, when you get to Blue Danube, there's a big old bass trombone solo. <laughs> and so that was kind of trial by fire, which was wonderful. But just to continue on a little bit, played, uh, did a lot of the Opera Colorado, Colorado Symphony subbing mainly. Played in the Colorado Music Festival Orchestra for a few summers as a sub. Um, just really love performing. Recording, I I had the beautiful opportunity to record on a lot of albums in Denver. There was a very active pocket of musicians, and composers would come in, and we'd record a lot of big band albums there. So I feel really fortunate to have done that. Um, Fast forward a little bit. Let me get into a little bit more of the mental health side here. Yeah. Okay? So love being a band director. Loved it. There's a huge part of me now that still misses a lot of that kind of work. But one thing that I found myself over the years was I had a very natural kind of way of getting to know students. It didn't take a whole lot of effort. In fact, that's the part of the job that I felt was the most natural for me. Um, and they'd start sharing things with me that weren't necessarily part of my role as a, as a band director. Things about their lives, about their families. And sometimes they were relatively neutral sorts of things, exciting things, happy things. And other times they were a little concerning, and I had to, you know, refer some kids to the school counselor or maybe the administration to get some support, or their parents, or, or both at times. And I started kind of noticing this yearning each time I would refer a kid to the office or to the school counselor's wing of the building. I started kind of d- developing this this slow burn yearning to be the person I would refer these kids to. It just really started to kind of seep into my into my psyche and um, make sense in in retrospect because I was deciding between music ed and psychology in, in undergrad. But I really started to develop that that yearning, like I said. And so when I had an opportunity to go to grad school, I, I made the choice. You know what? I went left last time. Not necessarily as a, a change of pace completely, but I'm going to go right when I go back to grad school. And so that's what I did. I, I went to Washington, D.C., had a great experience at Trinity Washington University, um, which is just down the street from Howard, if you're familiar with D.C. at all. You know, I could talk a lot about how, how much I enjoyed that school. But all that to say, still was performing the whole time. Would go back to Colorado to record things. Um, I was in the horn section for a pretty good pretty well-known rock band called Big Head Todd and the Monsters mm. that would tour around. And so would do some, some touring with them throughout that time. Uh, and then started to just play locally, doing a lot of corporate things that were there. DC has a lot of corporate events, as you can imagine. Didn't do much classical playing when I lived in DC, but I did a lot of commercial playing there. And when I moved there, one of my favorite big bands of all time is the Airmen of Note. And so when I moved there, just happened to be, uh, they had a bass trombone opening six months after I moved there. Wow. And so just, you know, I'd always really planned on auditioning for that band, and I just happened to live there at the same time. So a guy named Dudley Highnote, who was the bass trombone player, 
was retiring. I love that name, Dudley Hino, playing <laughs> bass trombone. Monster player. But he was also a U- University of Northern Colorado grad and had been in that chair since, I want to say, maybe the mid-'80s, wow. maybe late-'80s. And then it was open, ironically enough. So decided to throw my hat in the ring. Never done an audition, so I made the recording, sent in the recording, you know, round one. Was invited to do the live audition in D.C., where I already lived, which was great. So went, did the first round of the live audition, and I guess there was two rounds, the semifinal and the final round. So did the semifinal round, was in a, I think they did four full days of auditions, wow. there maybe four people each day, four or five. And uh, so went through that first semifinal round live, person came into the room to let us know who was going to advance, and they called my name out. So made it to that last round of that audition. And uh, that was kind of an interesting experience, to say the least. Very, I'd never done an audition like that beyond college. And so coming back to the the mental health, if you want to call it that, or the, the nerves, so to speak, yeah. or my goodness, I, didn't, I really didn't have many skills to, to manage that. I remember turning up my headphones in between rounds as loud as they could go and telling myself positive things, probably because I didn't have much else to, <laughs> that sounds good. to, to do. That seems to work uh, pretty well for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I remember that. Um, I want to come back to one story in a second too. But So go into the final round. I feel pretty good about how I did. It's not the best I can play, but it's far from the worst, which I would imagine is not not uh, uncommon for people to feel. Um, felt good. Was told I'd need to get a call next day either way and ended up getting that call that I came as close as you can get but didn't quite win. Oh, wow. And so that did a couple things just for me as a player. One, it was very difficult to comprehend and I had to really spend some time grieving that um, intentionally. And I... We can talk about grief all day too, but so I had to spend some time grieving that. Wish I would have let myself start grieving that sooner. Okay, I wasn't quite sure how to move through that either. But on the flip side, on the positive side, gave me a lot of confidence that I can hang. I can hang with people. And I kind of had some confidence from living in Colorado because I was playing with really amazing musicians, but you just don't know what you what you don't know. And so this was... Right a nice way to um, bring up that pile of, of evidence in my mind when I have some sense of doubt. That pile of evidence that counteracts that doubt um, is important. And so that was a, a big thing for me. Um, so as long as, as long as my lips are, are in shape enough, um, that's really kind of reduced the amount of stress I walk into a new situation with. So not completely, but it's reduced it. So anyway, I thought that was important to, to provide all that context. That's so, it's so important because I, I feel like everyone's got some version of that story, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like you work yeah. so hard or you're so excited about an opportunity and you don't get it, mm-hmm. right? Um, something I really loved that you said was that you, you, there was little comments that you made throughout a lot of those stories that were like it was really high pressure and that was great. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's so important to talk about that a little bit more and just dive into the idea that framing your perception of pressure or of, of anxiousness or of nervousness or what, however you want to imagine it, 
but thinking of that as a good thing is that like that's what's supposed to be happening, mm-hmm. right? Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm right there with you. It's we can get theoretical for a minute. Put my counselor, my therapist hat on for a minute, and what I really like about about evidence-based things like CBT, DBT, EMDR, Gottman's work for couples, those are the ones I use the most in my practice. What I really like about using evidence-based approaches with people is that the evidence I'm talking about is other people. <laughs> okay. Right. So it's what works for other people. It's all this research that's gone into how can we uh, intervene with ourselves in a way that is consistent and I hate to use the word predictable, but uh, consistent and quote unquote predictable. Yeah. So that when we face something unknown, it's not like we're feeling every part about it is unknown. Okay. The feeling itself can be very familiar, although what's, what's triggering that feeling can be unknown. And what I found is we can't always control what thoughts come to mind. There are a lot of reasons why certain thoughts come to people's minds. But what we can do is get really darn good at what happens next, okay? As a trauma therapist, as you can imagine, uh, we're not always in charge of what comes to mind. And just to define what trauma is for folks who are listening, what what makes an experience traumatic versus just a highly emotional experience, okay? Well, the answer to that quite simply is something about that experience didn't fully process through the brain as it was happening, which basically means that either the emotion at the time, negative self-belief, like I'm in trouble or, or I'm not worth this, I'm not, I'm, I shouldn't even be here. That's a negative self-belief. So emotion at the time, negative self-belief, or a physical sensation, okay? Maybe I get really nervous and anxious and my whole body tenses up. Well, that can get stuck in the brain as it's happening too. So that's what makes something traumatic is if one or more of those things don't fully process. So in essence, fast forward to today, something just seemingly similar comes up in our life, seemingly similar enough to what's stuck. And just like an electrical connection, if we light that thing up today, it can light up anything that's stuck. Mm. So if we were wondering, man, this, why does this little thing have such big re- emotional response? Well, that's probably why, okay? And in my work, regardless of the kind of trauma people have gone through in their lives, can be large T trauma, large T meaning something that's been life-threatening, or maybe we observed something life-threatening for somebody else, Mm -hmm. or learned of a a medical diagnosis that could become life-threatening. That's the common theme there. That's large T trauma. Yeah. Small T trauma can be almost anything. (laughs) <laughs> okay. But it works very much the same with how uh, things can get stuck there. Mm. All right. And one last thing I'll, I'll add there and then I'll pause is how can we, how can we safeguard ourselves from things getting stuck? There's not a great answer for that, but there's a pretty darn good answer. And that's making sure that we are taking care of ourselves because quite often how somebody enters a situation is what puts them at risk for things getting stuck. So for example, if I send 100 people into the same highly emotional experience, it can be very highly emotional, scary, and everything else. Why do only a handful or small handful come out with it being traumatic versus just a highly emotional experience? 
like I said, there's not a perfect answer to that, but I would be interested to know how those folks were doing as they entered the experience. Were they supporting a sick loved one? Mm. Were they a new parent and not sleeping at all? Were, was their relationship in trouble? And fill in the blank. We can all fill in the blanks. Um, So needless to say, we can go into how important it is to prioritize self-care as a university music student as much as playing your instrument. Man, there are all sorts of places we can go today with this stuff. Oh, yeah, I know. And I I knew this conversation would be one of those where there's like a million different little uh, threads on the spider web Uh that we could follow, you know. So I'm already like thinking ahead to the next like six episodes that we could do together. (laughs) Like we could do our whole spinoff podcast of (laughs) – Well, and and to be expected, right? Because um, I wouldn't expect – to be, let's flip the roles, and I'm I'm asking you, hey, Kevin, how do you play the horn? Yeah. Hmm. I'm not sure I'd expect us to be able to cover everything today. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all good. Um, so I, the the idea of, of processing trauma or at least being aware that there could be a challenge processing a certain kind of trauma I think is really important for musicians to hear that it doesn't have to be life-threatening for it, for something to get stuck mm-hmm. the same way that, you know, and, and maybe that makes you feel like, oh, I, I'm fine because, you know, like, I mean, there's people that go through real traumas, quote-unquote, real traumas, you know, every day. And mm-hmm. so it's just me that didn't win an audition. So I don't deserve to be – I don't need to be sad or I don't need to process things. I just need to get over it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what are some things that you can – how how would you um, maybe suggest to deal with that or to just or reframe that idea or some ideas that maybe if we came up with a hypothetical and that you were helping a patient with something like that, mm-hmm. how you would kind of treat that kind of a discussion a little sure. bit? No, that's a great question. You know, one thing that comes to mind is I'll bring in mindfulness for just a second, okay? And the way that I like to use mindfulness is In DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, mindfulness is one of the four kind of key components of that approach to therapy. And the way they describe mindfulness is really allowing all of our senses, our emotions, and our physical being to be present in the current moment. And the piece that I like to make sure I highlight is without judgment of what is also currently present. The without judgment part is huge because... If we're talking about trauma, most of the things that get stuck potentially are maybe triggering of judgment. So if I'm moving through a situation, let me give you an example here. And none of the examples I make up are are attached to anybody. I'm literally making these up. So if I got bullied in middle school as an example, and it was intentional, it was targeted, it was repeated, and there was a power differential between the people and myself. Mm-hmm. It's the definition of bullying. And I was made to feel worthless on a daily basis, okay? Um, and then I fast forward to myself as an adult, and I wanna go into my boss's office and ask for a raise, okay? I know that I've earned it. The people around me are getting raises that are doing the same kind of work. Um, They're not outperforming me. I'm doing the same level of work they are. They're getting their raises. I go in. I set the appointment. I go into boss's office. Why do I immediately feel like I haven't earned it Hmm. or that I'm I'm not worth even maybe even being in that office to ask for a raise? Where does that come from? Well, like I said earlier, there's not an easy or simple answer. But if I was working with somebody who is having some experiences that I – 
I like to set goals with folks basically on what they want in their life. What do you want? That's a goal. That's exactly what a goal is. Things that you want. I want to be able to ask for a raise. I've wanted to ask for a raise for two years, and I've never been able to do it. Okay, that's a great goal. I'm wondering, when you think about going in to ask for a raise, what, what, what comes to mind for you? You know, what's going, what's your self-talk like before you go in there? Well, to be honest with you, I don't feel like I deserve even to be there. Hmm. Okay, well, I'm wondering, when's the first time you ever remember feeling that way? And there's a, there's a planning process here. Mm -hmm. EMDR is the, uh, the approach I use to, quote, unquote, treat traumatic events. And there's a whole eight-step process for, for planning that. But that would be kind of an organic way I might go into planning with that person. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so, anyway, that's, that's a real-life thing. Those, those things exist. And if I want to turn it into a musical situation, you know, I really want to progress from uh, being eliminated in the first round to the second round of an audition. When I lived in D.C., I had a, a opportunity to meet a lot of world-class musicians who came into town to, to take military band auditions. And um, a lot of times that would be their goal. It's just I, I want to make the second round this time or I want to make the, the third round or because they'd taken so many they could mm -hmm. kind of approach it and uh, use those auditions almost as a little bit of a, of a lab. And here's what I did last time, which is great. Okay, if you take the job interview situation or asking for a raise and just convert that into wanting to make a different round or I want to make it to the finals and not get freaked out. Okay. Well, that's a great goal. And so it may be a similar process there. Okay. As far as how I might approach that person right. as a, uh, as a therapist. Right. Right. Yeah. As a teacher, it may be slightly different because I might provide more coaching. I might provide more more direction and more steps. Here's what I think you should do. But as a therapist, there's a little more exploration that goes into it. Totally. Yeah. And a lot of what I'm hearing kind of boils down to a couple things. One, as you said, like uh, the non-judgmental aspect of all of this stuff is super important for mm -hmm. all of us, right? Yeah. Uh, being able to acknowledge what's going on without adding like personal judgment and mm -hmm. like emotional judgment, yeah. um, both in the quality of your playing, if you're listening back to recorded mock audition tapes or like whatever, mm -hmm. um, or just results from an audition um, at the highest level of that. Um, but then the other part of this that I'm hearing a lot of is just general awareness, being able to just acknowledge what's going on and mm -hmm. actually ask yourself like, okay, what, what am I saying to myself um, as I'm walking into an audition or, you know, as I'm preparing months beforehand, like what is the, what's the stuff that's coming in the background that maybe I don't even realize, mm -hmm. right? And asking yourself that question and working on that awareness piece. Um, because as you said, you know, um, what, what are you bringing in with you? It's not just about the audition itself mm -hmm. that's possibly, you know, trauma-inducing. It's all the stuff that you're bringing along with it, mm -hmm. right? Is Absolutely. That, okay. Yeah. Certainly could be, you know, and it could also be that I didn't sleep well the night before. Maybe it's not things that are stuck or trauma. Maybe it's I didn't sleep well the night before. Or, you know, they, they said that this audition was going to be uh, an hour long, but I'm on my third hour now and I haven't eaten in two hours. Right. Or, you know, and um, I'll give out a couple of resources as we go here. And I like to, in, in therapy, I like to develop resources with people. 
external resources and internal resources. And external resources are the ones that come to mind for most folks first. Like if we're flooded with emotion, which is what I call it because it covers all the emotional bases, when we get flooded with emotion, how do we get ourselves back? Well, I go for a hike. I go for a walk. I, I uh, call my best friend. Um, those are really important to have. But it's also important to have internal resources, which are ways we can intervene with ourselves when none of our external things are available. Right. Okay. I love hilarious YouTube videos. <laughs> love them. But sometimes I, I'm not in a place where my phone's appropriate. Right. And so if my phone has become my one resource to go to when I'm stressed or emotionally flooded, I'm in trouble if that's my only thing. Right. And so internal resources, I can give the, the listeners a couple of those today. This is a DBT concept, the concept that there are four options when we look at any problem, okay? And then I'll expand on that in a second. So four options. You're looking at any problem. Option one, solve the problem. If you can find a solution. So if I, if I leave this podcast studio and go out in my, my car as a nail in the tire, then that's, that's a drag, but there's a solution there. I know how to fix that. Right. Okay. Option two is change my reaction to the problem using a resource. Change my emotional response to the problem. That's option two. Okay, so maybe that's going for a hike if it's a it's Saturday and I have time. Or maybe it's using something I'll expand on in just a second. Option three, practice radical acceptance. Okay, radical acceptance is a also very mindful concept that's used in DBT, but it's a mindfulness concept in general. Radical acceptance is where... I acknowledge anything that's currently present in this moment, not five minutes ago or tomorrow, because those are different moments. I'm looking at this moment almost as if I was looking around the room right now and seeing that there's a computer screen over there, there's a, uh, a keyboard, you know, there's, there's the microphone stuff, the preamps. Those exist on the table right now. I may not agree with it. They may not be where I want them to be tomorrow, <laughs> but right now that's where they are. Right. Okay. Now fill in the blanks, exchange the computer screen, the keyboard. I'm nervous as hell right now. It just is. There's no judgment. It can be really easy to judge, especially mm -hmm. if I've got a bad experience with being nervous. So part of, of practicing mindfulness is practicing obser observation and trying to mitigate the judgment. Okay, and that's something we can practice a lot. Um, so anyway, option one, solve the problem. Option two, change my reaction to the problem using a resource. Option three, practice radical acceptance. And the part that I, I missed there with radical acceptance is when I notice those things on the table, put each one of them into one of two categories, what's in my control and what's not in my control right now. Not five minutes ago, not tomorrow, because those are different moments. So... If there are things that are not in my control today, that's great. I do the best I can with the other column. Right. And then the fourth option, which is my favorite to describe, is continue being miserable. Okay? And the reason why they listed that fourth option in DBT is we can choose that if we want, you know? But sometimes that's the one that feels like it chooses itself. Right. And it's a reminder as, as number four that we've got three others. Right. 
Okay. That seems like a pretty bad option if you're like get to that one and you're like, well, maybe I can make one of the first three work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so option two, just to give folks some things to try, changed my reaction to the problem or my emotional response using a resource. I'm going to go talk with my friend for a minute. That's great. I'm going to watch a hilarious YouTube for a minute. That's great. I don't have time for a hike today, but I'll do that over the weekend. Notice how I said a minute, right? Because mm-hmm. at least when I was in college, I developed a bad habit of a minute becoming an hour. Yeah. And before you know it, <laughs> right. I think for me it was the water fountain. I just love talking with people so much. I'd go out to get a drink, and it would turn into an hour. Right. You know? Yep. And before you know it, man, those hours add up, don't they? So uh, in that case, maybe the internal resources will allow me to stay in the practice room and accomplish the same thing. So I describe the, using these resources the same as choosing to take a walk around the block, for example, if that's one that works for me. I have to choose to do that. I have to leave the room, go do it, and come back. Mm-hmm. Internal resources are the same. I have to choose to use them in the same way I'm choosing to walk around the block. Okay, and the first one that I really like is what I call the container. Okay, and the container is something we can all use in in practice every day. The container is a place to put disturbing thoughts, memories, or parts of thoughts and memories, and I use the word disturbing on purpose, until we want to bring them back out and look at them again. Okay, it's not compartmentalization. It's not pushing them away or pretending they don't exist. The container is acknowledging what exists and choosing to isolate it or, or contain it until it's a better time for me. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's such a that's such a key part of like any mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. too is the idea of allowing thoughts to arise and then just letting them go by, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, I can deal with that later. I don't need to think about that right now. Totally. Re- relive that moment or, or think about this upcoming project i got to be doing. I don't need that in this moment. So yeah. I can just let that go. I like the idea of the container because it, it references the idea that it's still there. You don't, you're not, you're not ignoring you it. it. if you want. Right. It's you there it anytime, there. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, and, please continue. Oh, no, that's great. And, um, what, you, what that can do over time is increase our perceived sense of control over anything that we choose to contain. Mm. So if the D-flattened bolero keeps me up at night, <laughs> and believe me, it has, <laughs> if I, if I uh, play it 40% of the time well in a practice room and this 60% is not allowing me to move on in my practice session, you know what? I'm gonna, I have a lesson in a few days. I'm going to save this one for so-and-so, okay? I encourage folks, when I describe that resource, I say, you know, just practice it once a day and any other time it could be helpful. That's how I say it. And over time, it can really become as reliable as taking a walk or going to the water fountain. It doesn't have to make the worst moment of our life feel like the best moment. That's unrealistic. Right. What it has to do is get us as close to neutral as we can get so we can move on. Uh, so I love the container. I think it's a really good one to start. Um, let me pause for a second. What's coming up for you? That's a great counselor question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the uh, what I love about this is it. it's – I'd love to read more about this approach too uh-huh. because I, it feels like there's so many parallels to like a mindfulness 
practice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about what you're dealing with that day. You know, some days you're, you sit and do a meditation or whatever and you feel great. It feels awesome. And some days it feels like you're pulling teeth and you're struggling and, you know, and then the part of being in control of how you deal with a situation, whether it's internal or external and choose, being able to choose a response versus being forced into a reaction. Mm -hmm. Like that is such a, some people say like response versus reaction. It means the same thing, whatever it's the same, it's semantics, but they're two very, very different words. And to me, those are two very, very different results mm -hmm. and like experiences. Yeah. You know, if you're responding to a situation that that's an intentional uh, action to me mm -hmm. versus a reaction that's very like emotional, usually emotionally driven and um, kind of uncontrollable. Or conditioned. Yeah, or Even conditioned. there's no emotion. Right, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. You know, so thinking about, the, I mean, there's so many places in, in music that that's, like you were saying, you know, like a, a certain passage in an excerpt or a really tricky solo or, or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Um, and it, you keep getting stuck there. Mm -hmm. You know, like I can, I can feel, I can recall a sensation of, you know, a, particular note or particular, you know, usually it's two notes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like the distance between two notes is the problem. It's not the note or the note before it, but it's yeah. that transition, right? Where it's like you can feel your body kind of get stuck trying to get between those two notes a little bit. Yeah. Right? And to me, that's kind of like the embodied sensation of like a, a mini trauma, micro trauma, if you will. Mm -hmm. that, yeah, it makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> You know, uh, the reaction piece is so interesting. There's a, this is another DBT concept called the wise mind. Okay, what does the wise mind mean? Well, we've all got three minds. We've got an emotional mind. We've got a rational mind. And I'm drawing two circles with my arms here that intersect. And where they intersect, that little sliver in the middle is called the wise mind. And one thing that can be really interesting to learn about ourselves or remind ourselves if we already know this is which one of these we go to as a default. Because if we're talking about reactions or, or uh, con being conditioned to respond in a certain way, well, it'd be really helpful to know if I get overly rational or if I get overly emotional. I hate to even say it that way. Maybe that's not the best way to say it. If I go to the rational mind first or the emotional mind, that's helpful to know because then I can stop and I'll come back to that in a second too and see if allowing a little space in between myself and the issue will allow me to just inch over to the middle a little bit. And so if I know that I, as a default, go to the emotional mind, which is quite often where a lot of impulsive decisions are made, is if we live in the emotional mind, then if I'm able to, to take a step back and invite the, the rational mind in a little bit, making a choice from the wise mind will most likely feel the best. Okay, and vice versa. If I go to the rational mind too much and ignore my emotion, then going to the wise mind will help me feel like I'm, I'm choosing the, the right choice, quote unquote, right choice. Mm -hmm. Okay, the reason why I said stop is this is another resource folks can can practice. Stop is a way to intervene with ourselves, another internal resource. If we feel like we're headed down a path we don't want to go either thinking-wise or, or leading to a behavior. So I'm, I'm getting frustrated that D-flat's not coming out. Ugh, I'm, I'm going to go to the drinking fountain again. Okay? Mm, pr try stopping. Okay? Stopping is an acronym. Okay, stop in your tracks. Okay? So stop is an acronym, but it's also the first word. Right. Fancy that. Stop in your tracks. The T is take a step back. 
either literally or metaphorically, or both. It's most helpful if you can just do it metaphorically, though. The O is observe what's in front of you, and then the P is proceed mindfully. And I like stop, because we can tell ourselves that if our mind's starting to roll. Oh, that D-flat. Stop. No judgment. I'm just stopping my tracks. I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to observe what's in front of me and then proceed mindfully. And if it's still a problem, then I'm going to use one of those four options. Okay, so maybe in this case, just changing my emotional reaction to the situation is the best option. I'm going to contain this one till my next lesson. See mm -hmm. how this works. And the nice thing about having systems like that, these are all human skills that we can practice and get better with intention. Okay? And that's where I really feel that, that learning about ourselves and getting used to observation without judgment, there will always be a little judgment, but as little judgment as you can get to is good. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, another thing that's coming, coming to mind here is is so much so many of these techniques right are obviously they're designed for for any situation at any part of our life whatever that happens mm -hmm. to be as a parent as a friend as a musician as a student whatever it might be right yeah. um and and whatever situation you feel like you need these the most could be a starting place and then from there like kind of let them leak out into those other parts of your life so that you're working on these skills in mm -hmm. all areas right totally because it's not then it's not just a music skill that we're practicing, a skill for our music mm -hmm. life. It's it's also, it's just a skill as a human being that we need to develop and we can be working on it at any point. Totally. You know, a lot of times when I'm talking to musicians about mindfulness or mindful approaches to different things, um, and I talk about like a formal mindfulness practice that, you know, if you can like incorporate this into the day, a lot of the pushback that you get from musicians especially is like, I don't have time for that. I gotta mm -hmm. be practicing. That's 20 minutes I could be practicing rather than spending time doing a meditation, or that's 10 minutes that I could be practicing, right? Mm -hmm. And I get that, right? But I think it's really helpful to remember that these techniques that we're working on, it's not just that you're working on it for music, but you're working on it just in general. Just as right? a person. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like cross-training. Right. You know, if we skip leg day too often, it's going to start to show. Right. If you're in the weight room. Right, totally. You know? uh, same here. And, and we can be practicing these things when, when we're in line at the DMV, and it's going a lot longer than it needs to. Yeah. Or it's going the right amount of time. There are just a lot of people there. Yep. Um, we can practice being mindful and practicing our four options. And yeah. in my private practice here in Reno, my first practice was was up in Tacoma, Washington, where I lived at the time. And then moving down here to Reno, same sort of focus, though, very trauma-focused and a lot of work with couples there. I do some more general work with anxiety, depression, too, things like that, of course, because it's part of being a person. Um, but most of my caseload, I've got a lot of folks who love music, but, uh, also I work with everyone under the sun, Yeah. any job you can think of under the sun. And that's the nice thing about evidence-based things is what we've been talking about so far today is not, uh, they're not approaches that are for musicians. They're, they're for human beings. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, yeah, it, it's so important because, um, as I was saying, it's just, it's so easy to get stuck on the, is this a, am I doing this? I'm doing this because of music. And that's, I mean, the story of kind of how I got into mindfulness mm -hmm. was because I wanted to be a better performer, period. Mm -hmm. 
And I was、yeah. like, oh, this sounds like something that could make me be a better performer. But then you realize that it's not just training you to try to be a better performer. Maybe、sure. that's a side effect, but it's not really the what's actually happening. Totally, it's、and、just affecting you as a human. There's nothing wrong with with having goals, and there's nothing wrong with having lofty goals. Yeah, but if there's a lot of judgment, you know, that's really where it can it can get in the way there. Right. If, man, I I want to be the best trombone player in the world. That's a goal. It's because it's something I want. Right,、mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with having lofty goals and then grinding it out.、Mm-hmm. But when the grind doesn't feel productive or feels harmful to ourselves as a person, or that's really where I think we can get more efficient, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Yeah,、mm-hmm. Go, going back to the idea of of、um, awareness and and just、mm-hmm. knowing what's going on and and asking yourself those questions of like. What what's going on inside of me? That's another thing I noticed that you were talking about is that you you realized early on that what you really enjoyed about music was like the commercial side of things, playing in big band and doing recordings and playing with bands and that kind of stuff. And that no orchestra is not really my thing.、Mm-hmm. And it's so important. Orchestral to, auditions, right? Sorry. I love playing in orchestra. Excuse me. Yeah, orchestral auditions, yeah, or, which、go. are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got so much respect for folks who pursue that. Yeah. But I knew that where my passions lied and. I love being in the studio. I love、uh, jazz. I love recording. You know, that's just where my passion was. Yeah. And other people feel the opposite about about their passions, and all the respect and more power to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's just so important to ask yourself those kinds of questions. Is to be、totally. in touch with yourself. Don't just keep hitting your head against the wall. You、mm-hmm. know, without without asking questions of why or、yeah. is this what I really love doing or、oh, you、yeah. know. Is this worth the goal that I have? Is what I'm going through right now worth the goal that I have for myself? You know,、mm-hmm. whatever it might be. So, well, you know, it's so interesting.、Uh, I'd mentioned this a little bit, and、um, where these can kind of come into play too, on more of a life level, is the better we get to know ourselves, the easier—not easier necessarily—the better we're going to be able to participate in our relationships.、Mm, yeah, and. Two questions I like to ask when I work with couples, and this is a question for each member of the couple, is, you know, what what gets you flooded with emotion, and how do you get yourself back? And those are both open-ended questions, because、hmm. when I work with couples, we're really talking about three relationships. Each member of the couple has an independent relationship with themselves. How's that one going? And that's really where most of what we've talked about today applies. Right. All the independent work that we do on ourselves.、Uh, To progress as a human being, which never ends, by the way,、uh, it's a constant <laughs> process until we're not around anymore.、Um, so, two independent relationships people have with themselves. What, did, what gets them flooded with emotion, and how do they get themselves back? And then the relationship they have together is—I like to point couples towards having an interdependent relationship with each other, meaning we're able to share how we're feeling about almost any topic. And include what we're needing. Okay, we've all heard the word kind of codependent. What does that mean?、Mm-hmm. Well, in a relationship context, codependent means that we stifle how we're feeling and what we need from each other. And in the same way, on the independent level, that we want to be able to observe any thought or anything that comes to mind and get really good at what happens next. In a couple, we want to be able to feel like we can do the same thing. We can we can handle anything that comes our way, because we know how to communicate how we're feeling with what each other and, and also what we need.、Uh, 
on a fundamental level, that's kind of what that is. But yeah. we could do a few more episodes on that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. I think uh, I think for this conversation, we'll kind of wrap it up there. Sure. And and yeah. uh, and and yeah, so many amazing things to talk about. Um, Can and, I just add one more thing? Yes, please. Um, I know that there, are, it's sometimes challenging to know where to. Where, I'm interested in finding a therapist. How do I yeah. start? Uh, and this will be brief. Um, there are a few places I would start. There's a phone number on the back of your insurance card that you can call and ask for a list of therapists in your area that take your insurance. Okay. You can also ask your primary care physician if you have one, if you have a doctor that you go to mm -hmm. already. Ask that person if there's anyone they recommend. And then a third resource that I really like for that is a website called Psychology Today. And I like that because you can read descriptions about people in your area. If you don't have health insurance, there are also folks you can find that accept maybe a sliding scale. Okay, I can only pay this much for therapy and finding somebody who meets that criteria. There are also ways to filter by the kind of work you want to do. So if you want to do some trauma work using EMDR because you've learned about that and are interested, you can filter by that. So back of your card, primary care doctor or psychology today. And the nice thing about finding a licensed therapist in your area is to go through a program, gain a license. For me, my program was three years in D.C. And then after the, I graduated, I practiced under supervision for four, about four and a half years to be independently licensed to do what I do now. Wow. So it's, it's you're really, if you've gained a license, you really do have a lot of training and um you can kind of rest assured that you're going to be using some of these concepts we talked about today, yeah. which is nice. That's great. And I, I, what I love is this convert, these kinds of conversations are, I think, becoming more common, mm -hmm. you know, just on a day-to-day -day basis even, or just, you know, out in whatever, you know, um, you know, whatever magazines or periodicals or like podcasts, interviews, mm -hmm. whatever you're hearing in the music world and beyond, obviously, that it's it's a really important thing. Mental health is so important, as we know. Mm -hmm. So it's really really good that that there's so many resources resources out there, and uh, I appreciate you sharing all that that good information with us. Yeah, my sure. pleasure, and I appreciate being invited, but also acknowledging that you chose to make this podcast, not just this episode, but the whole the whole series. And um, you didn't have to do that. You did it because <laughs> you felt it was it was valuable, and and you maybe were trying to meet a need in our musical community. And that's pretty cool. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And it's it's always a pleasure to talk to um, to someone who is as knowledgeable and and um, you know and eloquent about how they're how they're discussing all these important matters. So thanks yeah, very thank much you. for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Not bad for a trombone player. <laughs> <laughs> Another huge thank you to Gary for a great conversation and thank you all so much for listening. You can keep up to date on all new podcast releases and other exciting news by following me on Instagram at Mindful Musical Life or by visiting the website mindfulmusicallife.com. If you have a suggestion for a future topic or guest, please reach out. I'd love to hear your ideas. Remember, anyone who might be interested in mindfulness coaching can reach out via Instagram or my website to schedule a free 30 minute consultation. And lastly, if you like the podcast, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.